Welcome, and thank you for streaming this sermon. At Heritage Baptist Church, we believe that the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus can truly change lives. So it is our hope and prayer that this service stirs up your affection for Christ and helps you to draw closer to Him. For more information, please visit hbchazlett.org. Again, it's good to have State Representative Matt Krause with us this morning. He's, this is his third time to be with us over the years, the last five years. Uh, he is the State Representative on this side of 156, on the west side. If you're on that side, like I am, the State Representative is uh, Giovanni. They call him Gio. Uh, and so I'm so thankful for uh, just Brother Matt and his uh, conservatism, his uh, Christian leadership. And uh, he's just such a blessing, him and his wife, and his kids. And uh, I'll let you introduce them. Come on, Brother Matt. He's also running for Attorney General. So be in prayer for him. Thanks, Pastor. Hey, good morning. How are y'all doing? It's always good to be with y'all. Uh, as Pastor said, I'm Matt Krause. I'm delighted to have the First Lady of House District 93, uh, Jenny, uh, with me here today. And then we have Ruthie. We have Jeremiah, James, Gracie, and Hannah Sue. So uh, we're delighted to be here with y'all. We're here at the campus a lot. Uh, kids do Wednesday nights here. Uh, we do sports here. Basketball's about to start up. Uh, volleyball just ended not too long ago. So we love this church. We love this school. We love these people. So uh, thank you for the blessing y'all are to our family. And so it's a, it's a delight for us to be here today talking to y'all. And to do this on uh, Heritage Sunday, which I love. I think it is incredible that... The church would take one week every year to focus on their heritage as, as Americans and also as Christians, which I think is great. And I think it's actually very biblical. If you remember in the Old Testament, when they were going, the Israelites were going through uh, the desert and finally getting into the promised land, God told the uh, Israelites, they said, put up stones. It's like, why put up stones? He's like, those are memorial stones. So when you see those stones and people come by and the future generations ask, what is that there for? You can retell the faithfulness of God over and over and over. And it's a great reminder to everybody that God has done great things in the past and he can do those great things in the future, right? And I don't know if you feel like I do, but I feel like our country's at really kind of a tough spot right now, right? Um, I feel like there's, there, there's a little bit of cloud, there's a little bit of gloom, there's a little bit of darkness uh, for a variety of reasons, but uh, America's at, at a tough place right now. So I can't think of anything better and to put up one of those stones today and remind, uh, remind us the incredible legacy and heritage that America was built upon and that we've been given because it's in those darkest times where those memorial stones where that reminders of God's faithfulness and his goodness is even more important than it usually is. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about how incredible uh, America's heritage, our history, uh, our forgotten history, uh, our intentionally misconstrued history, uh, has become, but we're going to walk you through today why I think America has been so great for so long and the key to getting that back again uh, in the not-too-distant future. So we'll start with uh, America, 245 years old, right? And that goes back to 1776, not 1619, not another date. Uh, anybody who tells you anything other than this country was founded in 1776 is factually and historically illiterate, and you should not pay attention to them, right? So just know, for 245 years, America has been a country. In uh, July 1776, we signed that document that uh, broke us away from, uh, declared our independence from Great Britain, 
that, that's known, that's seen as our birthday, not the signing of the Constitution, which happened later on, not anything. It was in July 1776. So every July, we celebrate another birthday. And for 245 years, America's been the greatest, the most prosperous, the most secure, the most blessed nation on, in the world. And I don't think there's any, that, that's not just hyperbole, that's not a subjective thought. You look at any metric, and America is, has by far outshone anybody else in those 245 years. So then it's incumbent upon us to ask, okay, why? Why have we done so well in the last 245 years? And I'm going to submit to you, it's because we were built on the foundation of Judeo-Christian principles. We were built on a foundation that said, hey, the Bible has the guide to life. We need to embed those in our governmental system. And as long as we do that, we're going to be okay. And so you may think that's right. You may think that's not right. But hopefully by the end of this presentation today, you'll come around to my way of thinking and, and agree with that. So... Let's look. This is John Quincy Adams. Remember, John Quincy Adams was one of our first presidents. He was the son of John Adams. He was an ambassador to Russia when he was 14 years old, which think about that. When you're 14 years old, back in the 1700s, you didn't have uh, FaceTime. You didn't have email. You didn't have a phone. You didn't have a telegraph. You didn't have anything, yet he was so accomplished, he was so mature that John and Abigail sent him off to Russia when he was 14 years old to do official duties uh, in the Russian court, which is pretty incredible. But here's what uh, John Quincy Adams had to say. With regard to the history contained in the Bible, it is not so much praiseworthy to be acquainted with it as it is shameful to be ignorant of it. So back in the founding father's time, everybody knew the Bible. Today it's flipped, right? Somebody knows the Bible. Man, Pastor Crawford knows the Bible. That guy had to have gone to seminary. It's, it's incredible how much he knows. Well, it was flipped back then. Everybody knew the Bible. It's only if you didn't know the Bible that anybody took notice, and it was a negative, right? Uh, it was something to be ashamed of. It wasn't something that, uh, that you bragged about. And so that, that's kind of the air in the environment that our country was built upon. Okay, let's go to the next one. Okay, here's Zachary Taylor. He's one of our uh, first presidents, again, old, rough, and ready. Here's what he had to say. He said, the Bible is the best of books. I wish it were in the hands of everyone. It is indispensable to the safety and permanence of our institutions. Can we go to the next one? There you go. A free government cannot exist without religion and morals, and there cannot be morals without religion nor religion without the Bible. Amen. And again, notice he's not saying that religion is just some be-all, end-all, God is everywhere, God is in everywhere, go wherever you want, God loves you. He was saying you can't have uh, morals without religion, can't have a religion without the Bible. That ties it to a very specific religion, right? So just know our founding fathers, when they talked about religion, it wasn't some nefarious thing. It was usually always grounded in the Bible that, that we hold so dear. He says, especially should the Bible be placed in the hands of the young, it is the best school book in the world. I would that all of our people were brought up under the influence of that holy book. And in fact, we used to use a lot of scripture uh, in our, even in our public schools, right? Uh, a lot of times when I go and do some talks, I'll, I'll show a copy of the New England Primer. And the New England Primer was the kind of grade book for, I mean, the school book for uh, elementary school students all throughout the uh, New England area for years, for over 100 years. And when they were using, uh, learning the alphabet, it would be like for, in A, in Adam's fall, we send all. The letter C, Christ crucified for sinners died. So even when they were learning the building blocks of education, they were doing it through a biblical lens. And again, that's in public school, which we did for hundreds of years way after the founding of our country, way after the Constitution. So when anybody talks to you about separation of church and state, it was never intended to have any kind of religion as any part of our governmental structure. 
that's another person who doesn't understand history and doesn't understand the founding of our country. So, and then you have this, Andrew Jackson. He said, the Bible is the rock upon which our republic rests. It's pretty succinct, right? And then check this one out. So Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt said, the teachings of the Bible are so interwoven and entwined with our civic and social life that it would be impossible for us to figure out what life would be like if these teachings were removed. That's pretty strong, right? Remember, Teddy Roosevelt was one of the, our presidents. Uh, he, was, he was there right at the end of the 1800s, into the early 1900s. So even into the early 1900s, we had our president saying, the Bible is so interwoven with our civic and social life. That's not just saying we have strong churches, which is great. They're saying the Bible permeates all of society, even civic and social life, that we wouldn't recognize America if these teachings were removed. Now, I think we're starting to figure out what life would be like, right, if those teachings were removed from the public square. But back in those days, it was hard to even fathom. And so I think that gives credence to the fact that we're saying the Bible is what the entire uh, country was built off of. You've got all these founding fathers who were living it saying, this is the genius and this is what uh, made America great. So what does that give us? That gives us the concept that we get of American exceptionalism. And you kind of hear that, and everybody, it's kind of in disrepute now, right? Oh, you can't say American exceptionalism. That's terrible. That's, that's too prideful. It's too cocky. Well, American exceptionalism isn't saying Americans are better than the French or the English or the Italians. It has nothing to do with us. It has to do with the system of American values and principles that were established in the 1700s that were the greatest governing uh, thoughts ever conceived by man, right? It was a radical idea in the 1700s to say, you know what, uh, rights come from God, not from man, and so government is responsible to the people, not to, we're not responsible to them. That was radical. That was revolutionary. You'd had little pockets of uh, kind of republics or democracies in the past, but nothing of an entire political structure founded on that one idea, right? And so that's what American exceptionalism is. It's not that we're better than them. It's that we have a system that is so much better, and we've seen it copied time and time again in the last 245 years, which shows that we have a superior system. So, who's responsible for American exceptionalism? You might say it's George Washington, right? He was our first president, first in war, first in peace, first in the hearts of his countrymen. Everybody loves uh, George Washington. Well, or maybe it was Thomas Jefferson. Seems like if you're on the left or if you're on the right politically, everybody loves Thomas Jefferson. Maybe it was him. Or maybe it was John Hancock. Remember, he was the president of the Continental Congress, signed his name really big on the Declaration of Independence. Um, maybe it was him. Or maybe it was John Adams. Remember, he was the first uh, president, second, uh, I mean, first vice president, second president. HBO did an entire miniseries on him years ago. Very influential guy. Well, when you ask John Adams, who was most responsible for the character and nature of America, Look who he said. He said, uh, well, you had Richard Allen, and then you had, uh, you had Jonathan Mayhew. Oh, and make sure you don't forget about George Whitfield. And then, you know, there's Charles Chauncey. So when John Adams was asked who was most responsible for the character of America, he listed off four pastors. Isn't that incredible? Yeah. So when you're talking about, you know, why America became what it was, the founding fathers who lived it said it was the pastors in the pulpit who made us the way that we are today. Amen. And so it wasn't just those guys. Listen to this. Uh, you have Absalom Jones, you have John Morant, Lemuel Haynes, Richard Allen, Harry Hoosier. You have African-American pastors who were incredibly influential at the founding of our country. And we never even talk about those guys, and it's really a shame. 
Because I don't know if you've ever heard of Harry Hoosier, but he was an incredible guy. He was very articulate, and he would go up and down the East Coast, and he would talk about the need to end slavery in America and the need to increase morality in America. And he was so popular that he kept going in and just kept talking to people and talking to people, moved inland and inland and inland. And, uh, you know, finally he got to the Midwest area, and uh, he would be talking to people, and then the people from his congregation would go out into the community, and they would be talking to others, and they'd be like, oh, that's one of those ideas uh, from that pastor, huh? And they're like, yeah, yeah, from Harry Hoosier. They're like, oh, you're one of those Hoosiers. Well, where do you think Indiana got its nickname? Nobody knows that, right? So Indiana, every time it takes the basketball court, every time it takes the football field, has Hoosiers displayed across its chest, is paying homage to an evangelist, an African-American evangelist, who helped talk about the increased need for morality in the country. How incredible is that? But we never talk about that. We never hear about that. That's part of the rich American history that's been, for some reason, it's just been kind of shuttered. Um, But pastors played a huge role in the founding of our country. And why? Because, you know, you have the Declaration of Independence, right? When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary to dissolve the bonds, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness, all those flowery words. And then after that, there's specific counts against King George III, right? All the ways he's violated their liberty, all the ways he's infringed upon their liberties and freedoms. And so it's all those counts that really made them want to separate from, uh, from the British people. Well, pastors in the pulpits in, uh, in churches in America had been preaching many of those concepts since 1763. So a full 13 years before we declared independence, Pastors in the churches around America were laying the philosophical framework for wanting to declare independence. And so that's pretty pretty incredible, right? That's why pastors were seen as so important. They were seen as such a part of the uh, revolutionary spirit because they were the ones leading the intellectual uh, arguments for why we need to secede from Great Britain, which is incredible. So I want to look at two brothers real quick because I think this has a lot of carryover to today's day and age, um, nothing's new under the sun, right? I mean, Solomon said that. We see the same things they dealt with back then that we are now. So we're going to look at two brothers, John Peter Muhlenberg and Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg. We're going to look at John Peter first. He was, a, he was a preacher down in Virginia. And let's see if we can go to that next slide. I never know why this is in there, and i got to remember to take it out. But if you can go to the next one. There you go. So there's John Peter. I think there's another picture in there. Okay, so John Peter was a pastor. But he also became a major general. If you go one more, I think it'll, yeah. He became a major general in George Washington's army. Well, how did that happen? Well, he was preaching one day as the war was getting started, and he was preaching from his church out of Ecclesiastes 3. You know, Ecclesiastes 3 says a time for this, a time for that, a time for this, a time for that, a time for war, a time for peace. And he said, there's a time to fight, and that time is now. And he walked straight out the back of his church, took off his clergy uniform, had a full militia uh, uniform underneath, walked out into the battlefield, and took 300 of his parishioners with him. So now you've got John Peter Muhlenberg, this pastor, out on the battlefield fighting for independence. Okay, there you go. So this is his brother, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, and he's a pastor up in New York. So the older brother hears about what his brother did, taking off the robes and all that, and here's what he says. Frederick says, you would have acted for the best if you had kept out of this business from the beginning, I now give you my thoughts in brief. I think you were wrong. He's like, dude, you're a pastor, right? Little brother, you're a pastor. Your job is to preach the word of God. It's to get the gospel to as many people as possible. You're not out there trying to be soldier, playing on the battlefield. You should not have done that. You should not have done that. And so 
John Peter gets the letter, and of course, any good little brother can't let that go unanswered. And so he says, I'm a clergyman, it is true, but I'm a member of society as well as the poorest layman, and my liberty is as dear to me as any man. Shall I then sit still? Heaven forbid it. I am convinced it is my duty so to do, and duty I owe it to God and my country. So he's like, you're right, brother. I am a pastor, but I'm also a part of this community. And I've got brothers out there on the battlefield fighting for their liberty, and I've got to be out there with them. And so he, he keeps out there. He goes to battle. Frederick says, whatever. He keeps preaching until something happens. And in uh, 1777, the British invade New York. Not only do they invade New York, they kick him out of his church. So now Frederick's sitting there not able to preach, not able to evangelize, not able to give the gospel to the people he wants to. And he starts thinking, John was right. If I don't get involved in what's going on outside the walls of the church, I won't get to do what I continue to love to do inside the walls of the church. And if you're not seeing a little bit of that in the culture today, I want to make sure that you see that, right? We have got some uh, people who would very much like, in this day and age, to ensure that what we love doing in this church, what y'all do here every Sunday, every Wednesday, every day in, you should not be able to do except maybe on Sundays in a two-hour window, and even that they may want to take away Sunday. And so if you don't want to see that happen, you've got to get involved, right? Jesus called us to be salt and light, and I think the church is really good about being light. We take the gospel to Honduras. We go places all the time. We want to share our love for our Savior. We're really good at that. But salt, what does salt do? Salt flavors, and it preserves. And if we're not out there in the culture flavoring the culture and preserving the culture, we're going to lose it. Because if you're not out there interacting with the culture, somebody's going to be. And there's going to be decisions that are going to be made that you're not going to have any part of if you're not involved with it. So again, Frederick started thinking, I've got to get involved. I'm not a soldier. That's not where I can get involved, but I'll go the political route. And so look what he does. He gets involved in politics, gets involved in politics. This is the Bill of Rights. This is the uh, John Adams, the first vice president of the United States, signed that uh, as the president of the Senate. And look who signed from the House, Frederick Augustus Muhlenberg, the first speaker of the House under the United States Constitution. So he got involved in a different way, but also made a difference. So you had two pastors, one went to the battlefield, one went to the political field, both understood you've got to get involved outside the walls of the church. And so we're facing that same thing today. Amen. All right. So this is 1774. We're going to talk a little bit about that spiritual foundation uh, formation of our, of our country. 1774, this is the first time our founding fathers ever got together to discuss uh, independence, to discuss potentially breaking away from Great Britain. And can you tell what they're doing? They're praying, right? It's the first thing they did when they got together. They started praying. And this wasn't just a, hey, God bless our deliberations, amen. They prayed and they prayed. And in fact, John Adams who circled in yellow right there, said they not only prayed, but look what else they did. He says, I must beg you to read that psalm, read the 35th psalm to your friends, and read it to your father. So John Adams wrote home to Abigail and said, hey, we, we prayed, but then we read scripture. And what we read in Psalm 35 was so encouraging to us that you got to read it to your friends, and you got to read it to your father. Why read it to your father? Well, her father was the pastor in their area, and again, it goes back to if you wanted to get the message out or you wanted to have the influencers talk, it was your pastor. So they prayed, and they read Scripture, and they were so encouraged by what they saw, they felt like this is something that they ought to continue going. So they prayed, they read Scripture, and then look what they did. It says, we have appointed a continental fast. 
Millions will be upon their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings, his smiles on American councils in arms. So that First Continental Congress, those first two years, they prayed, they read scripture, and they fasted. We don't do a lot of that in the congressional uh, hearings uh, and, and meetings and gatherings in D.C. or in Austin, uh, and unfortunately. But that's what our founding fathers did. That's what gave them the excitement. That's what gave them the encouragement. That's what gave them the optimism that this is something that they might, uh, they might should do. So that's 1774. So then they get into the war, and how's all this uh, praying? How's all this uh, asking God to help them doing? So... Oh, yeah, go back real quick. John Adams, right during the war, he says, It appears to me the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. So now you got John Adams, the same guy giving us the eyewitness account in 1774. He's like, look, we don't know what's going on there, but it looks like the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation force. And you're like, okay, that guy's a politician. He'll say whatever he needs to. He can spin it. He can do whatever he wants. So look at what George Washington said. This is from the battlefield in 1778. The hand of providence has been so conspicuous or so easy to see in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that has not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. So Washington's like, look, if you can't tell that something's happening here and that God's the one doing this, you're worse than an infidel. You're wicked. That's pretty strong language from the commander-in-chief of the uh, Continental Army who's seeing everything play out. Not everything was great. There were setbacks. There were failures. There were losses. But even in all of that, Washington understood and he saw something's happening here, and it's beyond our control, and I'm very grateful for it. So, so then we get our independence, right? And in 1783, we have the Treaty of Paris, which finally gave us our uh, formal cessation from Great Britain. And we had three guys who signed it. We had uh, John Jay, we had uh, Benjamin Franklin, and we had John Adams. You can see their wax seals a little bit right there um, as they signed it. But check out how our first official document ever as a completely independent country, how it started out. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. What a way to start off a government document. That's pretty solid, right? Um, that's not in the year of our Lord. That's not, uh, you know, it's not some general thing. In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. That's pretty incredible. So you had from 1774, where we're praying for God, fasting, reading the Bible, 1783, when we invoked the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. And because of all that, John Adams said this. He said, the general principles... The general principles upon which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. So you'll hear people all the time tell you, oh, they, uh, our founding fathers were atheists, agnostics, and deists. They didn't care about Jesus. Uh, that's, that's just been told, you know, to create a narrative that's not true. Remember, John Adams was there in 1774 when everything started. He was there through the entire war, and he was there in 1783 when they signed the Treaty of Paris. Nobody has a better firsthand account or knowledge of what happened during the American Revolutionary War than John Adams, and he's the one who said we achieved it on the basic principles of Christianity. That's pretty incredible, right? That's a heritage. That's a legacy. That's something we can all be proud of and should be proud of because that's incredible, and that's what's given us 245 years of peace. So why do we get headlines like this? America's unchristian beginnings, 
Most, despite preachings of our pious right, were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. Now, I did not go to seminary, but I think if you invoke the most holy and undivided name of the Trinity, you are not rejecting the divinity of Jesus Christ, right? And that was just in our uh, state document. That wasn't even in their personal correspondence or how they really felt. That's just what they did. But where did they get this? And then you see headlines like this. The authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. So not only were they not Christians, they were actual enemies of Christ. That's taking it a step further. And then you have this. The founding fathers were not Christians. You probably hear that all the time. You see it in the media. You see it on social media. You hear it from your friends. All, all your learned and expert academic friends say, hey, that's just a narrative that we didn't know. So let's, let's test that out. Were these people deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus? Were they ones who were enemies of Christ? Well, the way to do that is if we go right to the source, right? This is a signing of the Declaration of Independence. And you have 56 men in that room, right? And usually people can name like two men in that room. And it's usually always Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin. And people are like, why have we trained people to recognize the two least religious founding fathers to the detriment of everybody else? But there's 54 other men in that picture, right? So let's look at some of those other 54 men and what they believe to see if it comports with some of those headlines we just saw. So the first one we'll look at is Samuel Adams, the cousin of John Adams. He was actually the more coveted Adams during the Revolutionary War. He was part of the Sons of Liberty that created so much havoc for the British. Part of this uh, group that signed the Declaration, he said, I rely upon the merits of Jesus Christ for a pardon of all my sins. That is a pretty strong statement for somebody who rejects the divinity of Jesus, right? If so, you're pretty dumb. Uh, if, you're, if you're putting all your faith and hope in somebody uh, that doesn't even have divinity. And so that was Samuel Adams, incredibly important uh, founding father. Let's go to the next one. John Witherspoon. He served on over 100 different committees while he was in Congress. Also served as the president of Princeton University and mentored some of our other founding fathers. Incredibly influential and important uh, man. <coughs> but look what he has to say. He says, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other. If you are not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ and not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. It's quite a statement for an enemy of Christ, right? Um, that's, that's, that's pretty hardcore. That is a very solid doctrinal statement from one of our most influential founding fathers. Let's go to the next one, Benjamin Rush. I don't know if you know Benjamin Rush. Everybody used to. In fact, when they said who were the most important founding fathers back in the uh, founding period, they would say Ben Franklin, George Washington, and Benjamin Rush. He was the father of American medicine. He actually pioneered the Sunday school movement uh, in, uh, in America. And he was the one who got Thomas Jefferson and John Adams back together again at the end of their life after there had been such a long schism, after they had had a strained relationship for so long. So incredibly important founding father. And he said, my only hope of salvation is in the infinite transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You could read that, pass the offering plate, sing a benediction, and have church, right? I mean, that's how solid that is in one little encapsulation of what he felt was the doctrine of salvation, and he nailed it. And this is one of our founding fathers. That is not a deist. That is not an atheist. That is not an agnostic. That is a born-again evangelical Christian whose hope and faith is in Jesus Christ. So, and then the next one. This is Richard Sherman. 
Richard Sherman was the only founding father to sign all four foundational documents, the Articles of Association, the Articles of Confederation, the Declaration of Independence, and the Constitution. And he was the guy who came up with the idea that in the upper house, it should be equally represented, and in the lower house, it should be represented by population. That is one of the cornerstones of our constitutional governance, and he's the guy who came up with that. He was also tasked by his denomination to come up with their theological creed. And so look what he said. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel, that is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. Isn't that incredible? Roger Sherman, the guy who came up with the idea of how we apportion our representatives, was incredibly influential in his denomination and understood the price that Jesus paid on the cross and wanted every man to know that. So then we're going to talk about John uh, Hancock. Remember, again, he was the... Uh, founding father signed his name really big on the declaration. They said, John, why'd you sign your name so big? He said, because I've heard King George III has really bad eyesight, and I want to know, make sure he knows that he can read my name. Um, I'm not sure if that's accurate, but I like to think that it is. I like that bravado. Um, but not only was he the first president of the Continental Congress, he was the governor of Massachusetts for a while. And as the governor of Massachusetts, he called his people to pray 22 different times through prayer proclamations. And check out what John Hancock asked the people of his state to pray for in these prayer proclamations. Let us pray and confess our sins before God and implore his forgiveness through the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Pray that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be established in peace and righteousness among all the nations of the earth. Pray that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. That's incredible, right? That's not, hey, help our crops to grow, uh, keep us safe, help us not to have a bad winter, uh, all the things you would think a uh, sitting head of state would ask his people to pray for. He's like, hey, let's pray that every knee would bow to the scepter of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. That's pretty incredible. That is not an enemy of Christ. That is not someone who rejects the divinity of Jesus Christ, and he could not be more influential in our founding day. So, the last one we're going to check out is Charles Carroll. The reason we do Charles Carroll last is because he was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence. Um, and in a time where the average lifespan was like late 30s into early 40s, he lived well past 80. And so, uh, his family came to him at one point and said, Charles, you will die. You know, you may not believe it, but it's going to happen at some point. And when that happens, do you know what's going to happen to you? So he got out this handwritten note, and here's what he tells him. He says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation, and on his merits, not on the works I've done in obedience to his precepts. It's Ephesians 2, 8, 9, right? I mean, it's not works, it's just God. Uh, so I'm good. Don't worry about me. When I go, I, I've, got, I've got a home in heaven because uh, it's not about me, it's what he did for me. And that was the last living signer of the Declaration of Independence, right? And so, in fact, because he was that last living signer, they were going to have a big uh, anniversary celebration on August 2nd, 1826. Why August 2nd? Because that's actually the day most of our founding fathers signed the Declaration. They didn't sign it on July 4th, 1776. Most all of them signed it on August 2nd, 1776. So 50 years later, they were going to get together in New York. They were going to have this big celebration after 50 years of most of them signed it. They said, Charles, can you come? He's like, no, I'm too old. I, I just can't make it. I'm not going to be able to make the trip. 
but send me one of the declarations, uh, or let, let me inscribe something on the back of one of the original copies of the declaration. You can read it there or whatever. So they said, okay, let's do that. So they sent it to him. And check out what he writes on the declaration is one of his last uh, statements to the American people. He says, I am grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which through Jesus Christ our Lord he has conferred on my beloved country. That's pretty strong. That's not just God bless America. That's not just thank you, God. That's the blessings which through Jesus Christ our Lord has conferred on my beloved country. And that was one of the last things we ever heard from him, which meant that that's really what he wanted to impart with the American people before he died. So, does that compute? Authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ? No. If you only pick out one or two of the Founding Fathers, you look at a very myopic view of those Founding Fathers, take some of the statements that they had, and again, I'm not saying every single one of them were sold-out, born-again evangelicals, but those 54 men that were in that room, uh, 56 men, a lot of them loved Jesus, they knew Jesus, they wanted to follow him, and they embedded the principles of the Bible into the government that they were creating. So, it's a, it's a shame because we used to uh, know all these people. In fact, that used to be a school book, The Lives of the Signers of the Declaration of Independence. School kids used to go through each one of those 56 men and understand who they were, what made them great, what they did for our country, and it gave us a sense of, of uh, excitement and purpose and confidence in our founding fathers. Now it's all about how they were terrible slave owner, this, that, and the other, so that we don't venerate them, so that we don't hold them dear, because it's easier to pull things away from their foundation once you don't venerate or, uh, you know, uh, associate with them. So, and actually, even better than the men who signed the declaration were the wives married to the guys who signed the declaration. Because you think about the wives, what they were doing. They were back home taking care of the farm, taking care of the businesses, taking care of the families, fighting off the British. I mean, it wasn't just in a vacuum. It's not like, oh, their husband's away. We're not going to uh, attack their property. No, these ladies were unbelievable. And so if you ever get a chance, read about the uh, men who signed the Declaration of Independence, but if you can, read about the women uh, who helped their husbands during that time, and you will see the caliber and character of America. And while we're great, and again, it will inspire you. So the last thing I want to do is read you two, uh, two speeches, one at the beginning uh, of, of Independence, and one when we were getting the Constitution done, just to once again kind of reinforce the fact that when our country was founded, it was founded in a way that uh, prized and venerated Judeo-Christian principles. So the first thing we're going to do, this is Patrick Henry. And Patrick Henry gets up in, in uh, March of 17, uh, in the 1770s, and, he, and it, this is kind of a pivotal time because the fighting's already begun a little bit, and Virginia's got to decide, okay, do we get involved with what's going on with our friends up north, or do we just kind of uh, stay back? Because if you've ever seen the statistics, only about a third of the Americans ever fought for independence. A third were loyal to the crown pretty much all the way through. A third were kind of too scared or apathetic to get involved at all. And only about a third of Americans actually fought for independence, which makes the win even more incredible. So Virginia was having to decide, do we go and get a part of this independence, uh, this battle for freedom, or do we stay on the sidelines? And Patrick Henry gets up and he says, Sir, we are not weak if we make a proper use of the means which God from nature has placed in our power. The millions of people armed in the holy cause of liberty and in such a country as, it's, as that which we possess are invincible by any force which our enemy can send against us. Besides, sir, we shall not fight our battles alone. There is a just God who presides over the destinies of nations and who will rise up our friends to fight our battles for us. 
The battle serves not to the strong alone, it's to the vigilant, the active, and the brave. The war's actually begun. The next gale that sweeps from the north will bring to our ears the clash of resounding arms. Our brethren are already in the field. Why stand we here idle? What is it that the gentlemen wish and what would they have? The gentlemen may cry, peace, peace, but there is no peace. Is life so dear or peace so sweet to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery? Forbid it, almighty God. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty or give me death. One of the most famous speeches in American history, one of the most effective speeches in American history, because that night, the Virginia uh, House of Burgesses said, you know what, Patrick's right. We've got to get involved in this battle. We've got to come to our uh, come to the arms of our fellow freedom fighters up north. We've got to get it done. One of the most pivotal moments in all of the American Revolution was made possible by this speech from Patrick Henry. Check this out, though. Guess how many times in those 14 sentences, guess how many times he quoted the Bible? And you may have been able to pick it out, but check this out. 11 times. Patrick Henry quoted 11 times, and look where he quoted from. He quoted from Jeremiah. Daniel, Ecclesiastes, Matthew, 2 Chronicles, Deuteronomy, 2 Thessalonians, all over the Old Testament, New Testament. It's, it's everywhere. It's all, the entire uh, kind of breadth and depth of uh, Scripture is what he quoted. Now you're going to tell me, I don't think he meant to do that. Well, that actually makes my point more that it was a biblical uh, environment that they grew up in because subconsciously that's just the language that they used, Right. And so he used that 11 times. He quoted scripture in those 14 sentences. It's not like he got up and said, man, I read Jesus Calling this morning, and it was really good, guys. Let me, uh, let me tell you what I read. No, he understood scripture. It was just a part of their vernacular. It's just how they talked and interacted. And so when he had to make an impassioned speech, scripture and the power of the words of scripture were used time and again to help us get involved in the war for independence. So the next one we're going to do is at the Constitutional Convention. Now we've got... Our uh, independence, remember they go to the Articles of Confederation and that's just such a mess for so long and they can't figure anything out. So a group gets together in 1787 and says, hey, we got to do something different or this, uh, this country, this experiment's going to go away. So they get together in the same place they got together in 1776, start hashing out the Constitution, and it's going nowhere. The big states are fighting with the uh, small states. The slave states are fighting with the free states. The rural states are fighting with the urban states. They cannot get anywhere. So... On June 28, 1787, Benjamin Franklin, the elder statesman and probably one of the least religious founding fathers, gets up and he says this, his longest talk of the entire convention. Benjamin Franklin says, In the situation of this assembly, groping as it were in the dark to find political truth and scarce able to distinguish it when presented to us, how has it happened, sir, that we have not hitherto once thought of humbly applying to the Father of lights to illuminate our understanding? In the beginning of the contest with Great Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayer in this room for divine protection. Our prayers were heard, and they were graciously answered. All of us engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. And have we now forgotten this powerful friend, or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived, sir, a long time, and the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. If a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings that except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. I firmly believe this, and I also believe without his concurring aid, we shall succeed in this political building no better than the builders of Babel, and we shall become a reproach and a byword down to future ages. 
I therefore beg leave to move that henceforth prayers imploring the assistance of heaven and its blessings on our deliberation be held in this assembly every morning before we proceed to business. Pretty incredible, right? One of our least religious founding fathers calling our other religious founding fathers to daily prayer. And Franklin was saying, hey, remember, in 1776, we had daily prayer in this room that God would help us. And have we forgotten that, right? It's, it's pretty powerful. And in fact, all the time you'll hear, Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Well, does a deist say, the longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of man? That's not a deist proposition, right? A deist says that God's like a watchmaker. He makes the watch, he lets it go, and then he's detached from it. Well, Benjamin Franklin just said he graciously heard our prayers and he graciously answered them. He is involved in the affairs of men. So anytime somebody tells you Ben Franklin's a deist, just point him to this one quote, and that'll disabuse that pretty quick. So, um, but, but check this out. One of our least religious founding fathers, in his 14 sentences, guess how many times he quoted the Bible? 13. And again, look at where he quoted from. It's the exact same thing. Luke, James, Psalms, Genesis, Chronicles, Daniel, Deuteronomy, Job. Again, I'm not saying that he purposefully used biblical language to try to rally the troops. I'm just saying that was part of the very fabric of society at that point, and that makes it even more important to me. So um, so what, what we do know is that they didn't actually vote. They didn't actually start having prayer every day. They didn't even vote on that motion, but they took a break. And they took about a three or four day break. And we know one of the first things they did is they went to church together. How do we know that? Because the front page of the Philadelphia paper the next day had the sermon slash prayer that the pastor prayed over all the founding fathers as they went to church together. They came back and by September 17th, they had conceived of the greatest governing document ever composed by man. Now, is it a coincidence that it all happened right after Benjamin Franklin kind of brought them back to the uh, true perspective and what they needed to have as they were trying to figure this out? Maybe. I think it was more providential and just a blessing that God finally, uh, that they finally uh, understood who they needed to have author this thing and, and went that way. So I think that, again, shows us that's what American exceptionalism is, right? That's what gave us 245 years of incredible prosperity and peace. I also think we're on the verge of potentially losing that, right? Yeah. So how do we not lose that? What is our role and our responsibility? And for that, we'll go to Charles Finney. He will tell us. In the 1800s, remember he was one of the uh, pastors second grade, uh, second grade Awakening, preached all over the country. Scores of people came to know the Lord because of him. But here's what he said in the 1800s. Listen how uh, prescient this sounds. He says, brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours, the churches, in a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the church is degenerate and worldly, the pulpit is responsible for it. If the world loses its interest in religion, the pulpit is responsible for it. If Satan rules in our halls of legislation, the pulpit is responsible for it. If our politics become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away, the pulpit is responsible for it. Let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility and respect to the morals of this nation. So what's our responsibility? Is to be the church, right? Amen. To be the church the way this church is supposed to be. Because we can get upset with everything going on in D.C., everything going on in Austin, everything going on everywhere. But Charles said it in the 1800s, and you've seen it time and time again. 
that all goes back to a, a lack of the church being who it needs to be, right? And so I tell everybody, they're like, oh, man, our problems are so big. How are we ever going to turn this thing around? And if we look at it like we're responsible for turning around a whole nation, 330 million or even a state of 30 million, it can get kind of daunting, right? But I always bring people back to Nehemiah. I love the story of Nehemiah when they rebuilt the wall. Because when Nehemiah rebuilt the wall, he didn't say, okay, let's go build the wall. He's like, no, your family, you build that part of the wall right there. And your family, you build that part of the wall. Your family, you build right there. You take this part, you take that part. You took your part that you could control, right? You did your part that you knew you had control over. And when they did that, for 52, in, in 52 days, they built a wall around the entire city, yeah. right? So you don't have to worry about uh, taking back the entire country. You don't have to worry about taking the entire state, the entire county, the entire city. Take back your home. Take back your church. Take back your community. And then it will continue to spread and it will continue to grow. So just remember that on Heritage Day. We've been given so much. To whom much is given, much is required, Right? Nobody's been given more than Americans and Texans. We have the greatest legacy. We have the greatest heritage. We have the greatest blessings that anybody has ever experienced. I'm so glad that I'm a Texan and born uh, when I was and being here alive in 2021. There's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of opportunities. There's a lot of struggles out there. But it's also a time for us to stand up and be a part of that uh, generations that came before us who valiantly fought to pass it on to the next generation. That's what we can do, and that's what we're called to do. And so uh, I thank you all for allowing us to be here today to talk about America's forgotten heritage, America's great heritage. I thank you all for what you're doing. Pastor, you're doing a great job. Hope you all have a great rest of your heritage day, and God bless you. That was phenomenal. Amen. Let's all stand. We are going to have a verse of invitation. Maybe you want to come today and pray. Maybe come pray for your country. Come pray for our city. Pray for Brother Krause. Pray for him. And let's take an opportunity to do that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a blessing it's been this morning, Lord, to hear about our founding fathers, Lord, the founding of our country. And Lord, may we as Christians be the salt that we ought to be. May our church continue to be the lighthouse, of course, but Lord, help us again to influence and to help to maintain and uh, our culture. Lord, I, I thank you, Lord, for the many great families that represent this church. And Lord, I thank you for uh, how they raise their children and then how they are raising their children. And Lord, may you use us to reach those around us. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. On behalf of our church and staff, thank you for listening to this sermon. For more sermons and more information about our church, please visit hbchazlett.com dot org.